0: Well, how much do you typically spend on your purse? Or I guess I should ask, how much would you be willing to spend on your purse? Uh, I was looking at purses online the other night, and I saw some cute bags available at Target for 20 or $30, and then I decided to go to Nordstroms.com and I saw a Valentino, which was gorgeous, for a mere $17,400. I realized that there is a very wide range in the prices of bags, especially when it comes to designer bags. And I learned that designer bags aren't a new thing; they've been around for hundreds of years. But designer bags really became big mid-century, like the 1950s, with brands like Gucci and Chanel and Louis Vuitton. And these bags were really, really uh, well constructed, well made, beautiful, and became not only uh, you know a bag, but actually a status symbol and so whenever we have something like that that's really valuable and really sought out you know what's sure to arise the knockoff right? And if you've ever heard of Canal Street in New York City, it is the home of the knockoffs. Uh, You could go there, especially in the 80s and the 90s, and find all sorts of knockoff designer bags. But as you got close to these bags, you realized they weren't even close to the real thing. Uh, crummy materials, bad construction, the stitching would be all over the board, there'd be strings hanging out, the hardware was cheap, you couldn't even close the buckles. Uh, Upon inspection, it was clear that these bags were not authentic, but they were knockoffs. Until recently, what's arisen is what they call the super fakes. Uh, Manufacturers have perfected the knockoff process, and now they've created what's called the super fakes. They use a higher quality materials, they put more energy and effort into this, and they say that even trained experts have a little dif- difficulty distinguishing between the fake and the real when it comes to these super fakes. And this has radically impacted the fashion industry. They say that the fashion industry potentially loses $50 billion a year in knockoff, fake, or super fake merchandise. But for the one who buys it, it gives them the opportunity to have something like the real for a fraction of the cost. Well, you know, manufacturing and selling fake merchandise, uh, it's illegal. It's a crime. But you know what's also a crime? To have a fake Christianity, a Christianity that's not real. Uh, Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, a familiar text to most of us, Uh, Jesus said, not Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on judgment day, when they stand before him, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Looking to all the externals, wanting to have that fake or that uh, external Christianity, trying to replicate it from the outside in. And then Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew 7, and I will declare to them... I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus saying, you never dealt with what's authentic, what's genuine. You never dealt with me in your heart. And Jesus gave this teaching because he doesn't want anybody to be a fake or a super fake Christian. And we see in the New Testament, he doesn't only warn us about what not to do, but he shows us what we should do in order to be sure that our faith is authentic. So as we begin our study through the book of James this year, uh, we're going to explore just the first verse this morning. We're going to look at James 1.1, and we're going to see that even the first verse reveals what a light. Of authentic faith should look like. So let's just read the first verse together. James chapter 1 verse 1. It reads, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Uh, now, this was typical of a letter in the ancient Near East. It would begin with a comment from who the author, who the sender of the letter was. Then it would talk about who the letter was sent to, who the addressees were, and then have a typical greeting, as this letter does. So we see right away that the sender was James. And as we read James in the Greek, uh, it actually says Jacobos and Jacobos is the name Jacob. So James was actually Jacob, but the English version of Jacob is James, so we will call him James, as our text does as well. And James was a very common name in the New Testament. There are four men uh, in the Gospels alone that go by the name of James. Uh, One is very insignificant. The other two were actually part of Jesus's original 12. And one was in Jesus's inner circle, but he was executed right before or at around the time this letter was written and could not have been the author. We know who the author of the book was, the fourth James, and he was actually the brother of Jesus. Uh, we see in Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 55, when they're questioning who Jesus is with his messianic claims, his great claims, they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph? and Simon, and Judas, or Jude, as he's called. So we see that James was Jesus's half-brother, right? Uh, Joseph and Mary were his parents, making James the half-brother of Jesus, who was from Mary alone. And the Bible teaches us that James's, James and Jesus' brothers, they did not believe in Jesus during the time of his regular earthly ministry. Uh, we see that in John 7, 5. John 7, 5, John records, for not even his brothers believed in him. They were veiled as to who he was, although they had grown up together with him. But scholars point out that During the time of Jesus' 40 days here on earth, between his resurrection and his ascension, he appeared to James, as 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says. He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And scholars will point out that it was during that time that James recognized that Jesus was who he said he was, and James believed. And we know that James believed because we see see it even in the beginning of the book of Acts. The first chapter of the book of Acts. If you note down Acts 1:13 and 14, Acts 1, 13 and 14 reveals uh, who was in Jesus' band when the church began. This small group of people who were gathered together, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts 1:13 there was Peter, John, and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So there was the original group of apostles or disciples minus Judas Iscariot. But then verse 14 goes on. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So by now his brothers, including James, had believed. And it's interesting to note that even though James didn't believe until after the resurrection of Christ, when he did believe, he quickly rose to prominence in the church. And he became actually the leader of the first church, the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, In Acts 12, 17, Acts 12, 17, we have Peter being released from jail, Peter going to the disciples, those who were praying for his release, and it says in Acts 12, 17 that Peter motioned them with his hand to be silent. He described how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James. James. And to the brothers because James again was a key leader, was the key leader in the first church at this time. James actually rose up to become the voice of wisdom in the early church. When we get to Acts 15, Acts 15, 13, for example, the Jerusalem council, where the early church was trying to decide, you know, is there a difference between the salvation of the Jew and the salvation of the Gentile? And of course, they realized that there's not. James was the voice of reason there. His speech is recorded in Acts 15, 13 through 12. 21, and scholars point out that the one whose speech was recorded was considered to be the most prominent in the church. So James had this very key role in the church, and we see even the Apostle Paul after his conversion in Galatians 1.19. Galatians 1.19, the Apostle Paul says that after his conversion, he says, I saw none of the other apostles... Except James, the Lord's brother. So James was in this position of prominence and really rose to the top in the Christian community. Because James, when he realized who Jesus really was, he resolved to know Jesus intimately. And that's our first point. We got to do the same thing. We need to resolve to know Jesus intimately. Authentic Christians are people who know Jesus and know Jesus from the heart. Now, James spent a lot of time knowing about his brother, Jesus, but he did not really know Jesus. And knowing Jesus is critical. In John seventeen three. You might want to note this one down. John 17, 3, as Jesus was praying to the Father before he went to the cross, Jesus said, this is eternal life. You might think, wow, what is eternal life? He says, "This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent." That's how important it is to know Jesus. Eternal life is contingent upon whether we really know Jesus or not. Remember Matthew 7:23, that warning that Jesus gave us about fake or super fake Christians? Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you, right? Never knew you, knew about you. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. And it's crazy to think, if we stop and think for a minute, how much James knew about Jesus. He grew up together with him, but he didn't really know Jesus. Until after Jesus rose from the dead and it all made sense to him. That's why that guy led a perfect life, right? Well, what does it mean then to know Jesus? Uh, You might wonder, well, if we're putting so much emphasis on knowing Jesus, is there something I'm missing with what it means to know Jesus? And actually, it's quite simple. Uh, The first thing is we've got to know the truth about who he is. Jesus is the second person of the triune God who came to earth to make provision for, to pay the penalty for our sins, the penalty that our sins have earned. So that's the first key in knowing Jesus is knowing Accurately, who he is. But the second key is responding to that knowledge. Responding to that knowledge uh, graces us with the ability to know him intimately, to really know him. When we go from knowing about that knowledge to putting our trust in that knowledge and choosing to turn from our sins. And when we trust in Jesus and turn from our sins, then we know him as James learned to know him after he rose from the dead. And then finally, we grow in our knowledge of him. It's not like we just know Jesus when we got saved eight years ago or 18 years ago, and then we walk away. No, we continue to grow in that knowledge. That's what people with authentic faith do. People who know Jesus continue to grow in that knowledge. The relationship with Christ continues. It's a relationship of continual trust and turning from sin. So that's what James did, and we know he did that because James, the author of our letter, became known to church history as James the Just. Uh, That was what church history knew him by, James the Just, because James had a passion for the law, the word of God, and obeying the word of God. He was known for loving God's word and putting God's word into practice. They say he was a lover of the law, and they knew him then as James the Just. And he also developed a nickname. You know what his nickname was? Old Camel Knees. Now, the reason he developed the nickname Old Camel Knees was because they said that he was often found alone in the temple on his knees praying to God. And he did this so frequently that his knees started to get knobby like a camel's knees. And that was the fond term that they had for him. James the Just, the lover of the law, was Old Camel Knees a lover of prayer and you see those two components there in James lives that we hear about all the time right the Bible and prayer James the just and old camel knees so even if we've come to the game let's say we've even got saved later in life like James we still have the same opportunity as everyone else in this room to know Jesus intimately But we've got to resolve to do that. And in resolving to do that, we've got to make a choice. Am I going to do that? What am I going to do with my time? What am I going to do with the 24 hours a day that God has graced me with? Because we've all been given the same 24 hours in a day. You don't have more than me or less than me, and I don't have more or less than you. But we're responsible for what we do with those 24 hours. And you know what? Starting women's Bible study is a perfect opportunity to make a resolve. A resolve to know Jesus intimately by knowing his word, by knowing the book of James, When I first became a Christian, I was not raised in a Christian home. I came out of dark darkness into the light. And the very first thing that I did the morning after I got saved was I went to the store and I bought a Bible. And then I signed up for a women's Bible study. I signed up for a women's Bible study, and I got to know older women who invested in me and mentored me, and I did those studies year after year, reading the passages, doing the homework, memorizing the text, listening to the discussions, asking questions, and applying everything that I learned to my life, and I do not look back with Any regret at making those decisions to spend my time in that way because it helped me to grow in my intimacy with Jesus. So, whether we've been Christians for eight days or for 80 years, we've got to ask ourselves what do we want to be known for? What do we want other people to know us for? For our intimacy with Jesus, our passion for his word, our passion for prayer, or for something else. And you know what's interesting? When we really choose, when we resolve to know Jesus intimately, what happens is he works within us. He works within our heart a genuine desire to serve him. To be his servant. And we see the same thing in James. If we look back at James 1.1 again. James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James self-identifies as a servant. Uh, The Greek word there, doulos, is actually slave. James says that he is a slave of God and of his brother, Jesus. He saw himself as a servant of Jesus. And that's our second point, is we too, we need to commit to serve Jesus wholeheartedly. We've got to say, we're going to serve Jesus with all our heart because authentic Christians are people who serve the Lord. Their hearts desire to serve Jesus. Now, scholars have said, you know, why in this greeting do you think that James didn't bring up the fact that he was the half-brother of Christ or related to Christ? And they will respond, uh, the best commentators will say that despite his family status... And his very high position in the early church, James wanted his audience, his readers, and even us to know that he really was a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ, just like we are too. He wanted to identify with us and let us know that we are all on the same footing. And that self-awareness as a servant of Christ isn't at all surprising, considering that James would have known about much of the teaching of his brother. And Jesus taught this repeatedly. Uh, for example in mark 10:42 through 45 mark 10:42 through 45 it says jesus called to his disciples and he said to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus saying for the Gentiles, for those who are not followers of God, they really want positions of power and prestige. That's what they search for. That's what they long for and desire. And then he says in verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Same Greek word James used in James 1.1. For even the son of man, Jesus saying, even he himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what's interesting is Jesus actually had another half-brother who wrote a letter of the New Testament. You know who that was? Jude. Yeah, Jude. Uh, Jude refers to himself the same way that James does. If you look at Jude, uh, Jude 1, it says, Jude, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, Jude did the same thing here. Because like James and Jude, all of us, all of us as Christians, those with authentic faith, are called to be servants of Jesus. Now, you might think, why does he want us to serve him? Does he want us to repay him for our salvation? No, we can't. We could never repay him for what he's done for us. And you know what? It's not even because he quote-unquote needs us and couldn't get his work done without us. Uh, In A.W. Tozer's knowledge of the holy, uh, he talks about this, the self-sufficiency of God. Uh, A.W. Tozer says, listen to this, we're all human beings. Suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. So he's saying, even if we couldn't see it, even if no one could see it, the sun would still shine and so would the stars. He said, for these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So were every man on earth to become atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away the self-sufficiency of God. It's absurd for us to think in any way that he needs us or can't do what he intends to do without us. No, we serve him for another reason. We serve him because he has graced us with the honor of service. And that would have been very familiar to James's audience, to a Jewish mind. They remembered people like Moses, who was called the servant of the Lord, or Joshua, the servant of the Lord, or King David, who was even called by God himself in Isaiah or in uh, Jeremiah 33, 21, my servant. This is my servant, David. Even Israel, God's people were called the servant of the Lord. It's a big deal to be considered God's servant, and we are slaves or servants of Jesus, meaning we are subordinate to him, we do all that he commands, and meaning that we are in a position of prestige as servants of the Most High God. Our focus is not to be on our service, but on who we serve. We serve the most high God. This shouldn't be something that we view with a pessimistic attitude. Like, yeah, I'll do it. I'm just a servant. No, we should say, I'll do it because I'm a servant. I am a servant of the most high God. So then we think, well, then how do I serve Jesus? If I'm called to commit to serve Jesus wholeheartedly, what does that look like? And Jesus revealed that to us in Matthew 25, 40. Jesus said, very simply, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus said, if you want to serve me, serve other people. And when you serve other people, you're serving me. I read about an incident that took place in uh, the 1950s where at a Chicago train station, there were reporters gathered to greet the 1952 Nobel Peace Prize winner. They were waiting for him to get off the train. And when he got off the train, they bombarded him with questions and greetings. And uh, they said suddenly something caught his attention. And he said, let me excuse myself for a minute. And they said that he walked over to an elderly woman who was struggling to get her suitcases off that same train. And he helped her. He helped her get those suitcases off the train. And then he also helped her get those suitcases onto the bus that she needed to take. And then when he was done, he returned and he said, excuse me, uh, I'm sorry for the delay. And one reporter wrote that a city official said, that's the first time I ever saw a sermon walking, putting into practice the things that we know, serving because we know Jesus. You know, I've seen sermons walking. I remember one time a few years ago, I was leaving the church offices and I saw A guy with a broken down car and he was struggling around his car and looking at him I could tell that he probably wasn't a compass person either he worked in one of the buildings around here or maybe his car had broken down so he just pulled into our parking lot and I remember walking by literally thinking to myself even though it was midday I'll pray for him (laughs) well a few seconds after that the young John Favares walked by as well, and he wasn't a pastor here. He wasn't even on staff here yet, but he walked up to that guy and said, hey, can I help you out? And it was as natural for him as taking the next step. It wasn't like it was forced. It was like that was what he did because that was his mindset. That was his attitude. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's a sermon walking. And I know where he learned that. He learned that from his dad, our senior pastor, Mike Fabaris, who has lived a life of being a sermon walking. I remember many, many years ago when my best friend got a flat tire on the road and she called me to say that Pastor Mike drove by and then backed up and waited with her until AAA came to fix her car sermons walking people where this is their mindset this is their self-identification this is their attitude this is the way they view themselves as servants of christ and we're all to do that Uh, that's what the book of philippians says if we look at philippians 2 5 through 8 Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, this is to be your mindset. This is to be the way that you self-identify, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus had, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, be exploited, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, taking on human flesh, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even death on a Roman execution rack reserved only for the lowest in society." So we've got our example here, the mindset that we should all have as followers of Christ, the self-identification that we should have as servants or slaves as Christ, doing what Jesus did, going from the highest position in the universe and taking on human flesh, humbling himself all the way to death on a cross. And why? To serve us, to serve others. It's a new self perception. We should say, all of us, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do that, it shouldn't be hard for us to serve our husbands, serve our kids, serve our church, serve our friends, serve our neighbors serve whoever it is because that's who we are we are servants of christ and you know what we serve them whether they deserve it or not you know why because he served us when we didn't deserve it right and we model out what he did for us well remember uh old camel knees that nickname that james got Uh, They said that when he went to the temple for prayer, uh, he was found praying for other people. That was his heart. It was always about other people. And he was actually praying that other people would repent and believe as well. He was praying that they would get to the place where they would know Jesus. And we see that James was continually concerned with the spiritual state of others Let's look back at James 1.1. He says here, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, James was concerned about his audience, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and he wrote to them. Uh, That word translated as dispersion is the Greek diaspora, and it means the scattering. These people had been scattered. They were persecuted because of their Christian faith. And we see that in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 8.1, for example. It says, after uh, the disciple Stephen was stoned, it says in Acts Eight, one, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. That was James's church, the church that he was the pastor over. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then later in Acts eleven nineteen. It adds, it says in Acts eleven nineteen. 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. They preached the gospel to the Jews first, as Romans 1 attests. Now these people, James knew them. He loved them. He knew that because of this scattering, they had lost their homes. Uh, they didn't have their homes anymore. They had lost their jobs. They had lost their livelihoods. They were rejected. They were rejected by the world as followers of Christ, and they were rejected by their fellow Jews as followers of Christ. Uh, These people were broken and suffering, and they had lost everything, but James encourages them. He encourages them through the letter to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus and his great plan for their lives. And he will encourage us in the same way as well. Our third point is we need to determine to trust Jesus unwaveringly. We need to determine to trust Jesus unwaveringly. Because authentic Christians, they trust not in their circumstances, but they trust in Jesus, and that comes from the heart. And James encouraged these people in the midst of their difficulties. He told them, you need to trust, because although things are out of whack right now, because things are wrong and they're not right, Jesus is coming back, and he's gonna fix everything that's wrong. He's gonna take every wrong and make it right. And we see that in James 5, 7. James 5, 7, as he was addressing some of the incredible suffering that they were enduring, he said, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, because Jesus is coming back and he's going to make everything right. And yet he tells them, you know, there's a right way to live in between now now and then, in between right now when you've been saved and when Jesus comes back. And we see a glimpse of that even in that first verse. In the first verse, he greets them with the word greetings. And that's a typical greeting of a letter in the ancient Near East. But that word is actually from the Greek verb kairo. And it's translated in the New Testament, the same inflection of the same verb as kairo rejoice. So greetings could also be translated as rejoice. So he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to the people who have lost everything, to the people who are hated by the world and even your own people, greetings, rejoice, be joyful because Jesus plan, he's got a plan that's bigger and better than anything you could ever imagine. And we know that. We know that to be true. I know uh, a favorite verse "Work together for good. God's got a bigger and better plan for those who are called according to his purpose. And yet, that wasn't written yet when James wrote this, because scholars say that James was the first letter written in the New Testament. Uh, James is actually the oldest piece of Christian literature that we have. So they didn't have Romans 8.28, but you know what they had? They had the Old Testament parallel of Romans 8.28. They had the story of their hero, Joseph, in the Old Testament. And they would have been familiar with that. Uh, The story that runs from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, talking about Joseph. uh, Joseph who was hated by his own brothers. Joseph who was actually trafficked by his own brothers, he was sold as a slave by his own brothers, Joseph who was wrongfully accused of rape, Joseph who was imprisoned, Joseph who was forgotten, Joseph who lived a life with great tragedy, and yet realized that even all of that was part of God's plan. Part of God's plan because God knew that there was a famine coming on the land. And God moved and orchestrated things so that Joseph would be in the right position. So when that famine struck, Joseph would be the man that he would use to save lives. And he did. And that's why Joseph makes this incredible statement to his brothers in Genesis 45, 5. This incredible statement, recognizing God's control, God's hand, his need to trust God, even in the midst of great adversity, he says to his brothers in Genesis 45, 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Okay, that's a big deal thing. They sold him. They trafficked him. What they did was wrong, and they were responsible. He says, you sold me here. And then he says, for God sent me. God sent me before you. Why? To preserve life. Joseph had this incredible understanding of the fact that they had wronged him, that they had sinned against him, and they were responsible for their sins. They sold him. But even in the midst of that selling, God sent him. God sent him to preserve lives. Remember that uh, diaspora, that scattering that had taken place, moving these new Jewish Christians around potentially to save lives. Uh, Jesus, in the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1-8, as he was instructing his followers to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, he told them in Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what are you going to do? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How do they get to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Through something like the diaspora, the scattering, losing their homes, losing their jobs, being rejected by the world, being rejected by their people. Persecution and suffering led to the potential saving of lives. James's audience needed to trust Jesus unwaveringly, and we do too, because we all have difficult circumstances. We all have hardship that we are enduring. But God promises to use our hardship not only for our good, but for the good of others, for his good as well. Now, remember those designer bags? I learned that the most expensive designer bag in the world is the Hermes Birkin bag. The Hermes Birkin bag, one just sold for half a million dollars, $500,000 for one purse. And I uh, was wondering, why are these bags so expensive? I mean, they say that uh, investing in these Hermes bags is a wiser choice than silver, gold, and the stock market combined. I mean, the way they go up in value. So why do they cost so much? Well, they're apparently made from the best materials, calf skin, alligator skin, ostrich skin, 18 karat gold, diamonds, etc. cetera. Uh, they're made or constructed by the best artisans. They say that they train artisans for years before they're ever allowed to make their first bag. And each and every bag is handmade. And then they're exclusive. These Birkin bags are so exclusive that you can't even get on a wait list to get one. You have to be invited to get one. I was thinking about that guy who bought the $500,000 bag. He says that he actually uses it in public. Uh, you would need a team of secret service police to protect you at that point. If I went out in my neighborhood with that bag, it'd be gone in 30 seconds. I mean, there's no way. But you know what? Our authentic faith is far better than that. Our authentic faith results from the best material in the universe. We see that in 1 Peter 1.18. It says that we were redeemed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold or ostrich skin, right? But with the precious blood of Christ, that's the material that goes into our authentic faith. Our authentic faith has not only been constructed by artisans, but the artisan. And it's been constructed to last eternally. Uh, James Jesus, James's brother and Jesus' brother Jude wrote in Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. Talk about uh, eternal construction. He keeps us from stumbling. He presents us before the throne as blameless, as spotless, without wrinkle. And exclusive, so exclusive is our authentic faith that it comes by only one name. One name alone, Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. Our authentic faith, it has been purchased and provided by and even protected by Jesus himself. Our authentic faith is far more valuable, a far better investment than any Hermes bag. If you and me, like James, are ready to really know and serve and trust Jesus, we can prepare for real change as we work through the five chapters of this book. We're going to learn from James the Just. We're gonna learn from Old Camel Niece, the leader of the first church at Jerusalem, the half brother and slave of Jesus Christ himself, in five chapters, what it really means to have authentic faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these outstanding women that you have providentially drawn here this morning. I know that each and every soul represented in this room has been hand-selected by you to be here, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us all. If there's any in this room who don't yet really know you, who haven't really gone from that place of knowing about you to putting their trust in you and turning from their sins, I pray that today would be the day. And for the rest of us that do know you, Lord, I pray that like James, we would grow in intimacy with you, that we wouldn't waste time, that we, excuse me, would be known as women who love your word and who are always found in prayer. God, I pray that we would be your servant, that we would self-identify even now as servants or slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would see the great honor in being servants of the Most High God. And I pray that, you would help us as those with authentic faith do to trust you, to trust you wholeheartedly. God, I know that life is hard, but we know that you are good, and you have a plan in every single bit of pain, every tear, every trial that you allow in our lives. And so, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in his great name, amen.